This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latin American Studies. I'm Pamela Fuentes, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Rebecca Jansen about her new book, The National Body in Mexican Literature, Collective Challenges to Biopolitical Control. Uh, Rebecca Jansen, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I wonder if you could begin the interview by, tell, by telling us a little bit more about yourself. Absolutely. So I am an assistant professor of Spanish uh, with a focus on Mexican literature and culture at the University of South Carolina in Columbia. And I just arrived there this past fall. um, And I have written a book called The National Body in Mexican Literature. Uh, And that began as my dissertation project when I was a PhD student at the University of Toronto. That's awesome. So let's let's start talking about the book. You just uh, paved the way for that. How did you come to write uh, the National Body in Mexican Literature? You t- you already told us that it was part of your dissertation, but why your interest in this topic? Well, Mexico is a country with a fascinating relationship between national rhetoric and the body. Um, so that's kind of where it began. Um, For your listeners who might not know, um, Mexico had a revolution in the early 20th century, and um, following the revolution, there was significant investment in having a national mixed-race body, the mestizo race, particularly propagated by one of the early ministers of education in the country, Jose Vasconcelos. And um, as a result of his influential thinking, there's a lot of interest um, or investment in public health and public education programs, um, the development of unions, and um, comparable to unions for pe- for peasants in the countryside, um, all based around this national ideal. And uh, I thought that was very interesting, and especially when the revolution is um, consolidated as in institution through first there's a number of presidents in a very short number of years after the revolutionary constitution of 1917 in Mexico and then um, as the years go on Lázaro Cárdenas becomes president in 1934 of Mexico with the Mexican Revolutionary Party and in 1940 which is when my book really begins its focus on the national, the Mexican Revolutionary Party becomes the Institutional Revolutionary Party, and through that party, the Mexican government consolidates its relationship 
um, basically with a single political party until the year 2000, as well as with labor unions, um, public health and public education programs, um, with campesinos, indigenous people, and uh, develops a unique relationship with the Catholic Church um, in spite of Mexico being an officially secular country. So all this is going on, um, and Mexico begins a period of uh, industrialization and economic development between 1940 and 1968, which is commonly called the Mexican Miracle. Um, And so the first three chapters of my book really focus on that period. And then the final chapter um, is about a book published about a decade after that, that's a reflection on the failures um, of this industrialization project and how the authors that I was focusing on were already pointing out the fact that this national body is not an inclusive body of all of the people in Mexico, that it isn't living up to its promises for ordinary Mexicans. So here you are telling us about uh, two topics I would like you to uh, let us know more. One, it is the structure of your book and the relationship that your narrative has with history. That's something I found like really, really strong in your book because you are not only talking about uh, the authors and their uh, books, but also the relationship that it has with different moments in history. So can you tell us more about the relationship of the way you structured your book and the, the historical context of my Yeah, so as you correctly noted, um, I am really interested in Mexican history, and um, a lot of the historical background for my book comes from um, archival research, as well as, um, I'm not sure how you say this in English, like newspaper research from that time period, as in addition to other archival documents. Um, So I think that the only, or one good way to interpret literature is by looking closely at the historical context. Um, And that's a way we can understand more about the literary text. The authors that I look at um, are José de Hueltas, Juan Rulfo, Rosario Castellanos, and Vicente Leñero. And all of these people were prominent intellectuals, like José José de Hueltas was a noted communist, Juan Rulfo was involved in the Mexican civil service. Rosario Castellanos, also a civil servant, um, who was primarily concerned with the rights of indigenous people. Vicente Leñero, prominent in newspapers, which are um, publicly funded partially in Mexico, and a playwright, which is also part of the publicly funded cultural sphere in Mexico. So these are people who are very influential in their time periods. So I don't think you can understand their fictional writing outside of the context of their activism or their political writing. Um, and to try and unify these authors um, who, whose work is somewhat different from one another, uh, what I focus on are novels and short stories only. Um, I, I had two um, kind of main focuses. One of them was using a bodily image in each chapter Um, And the other one was looking at how this bodily image came up in what Louis Althusser calls ideological state apparatuses. Um, So, which I interpreted as basically any strong organization that has a close relationship with with government and government money. Um, So the first chapter is about José de Vuelta. And in that chapter, I focus on the image of blindness um, and really, really weird things that are happening with eyes, like 
large numbers of eyes falling out of someone's head, a cyclops god, um, a teacher who's blinded by a group of um, very strong Catholic believers who are opposed to public education, that kind of thing. In Juan Rulfo, the chapter on Juan Rulfo, I look at his novel and collection of short stories and the image of blood. Um, the idea of blood in Mexico and throughout Latin America is closely tied to uh, the colonial period and blood purity, which um, is one way that the Spanish um, colonizers were deeply invested in race, but because of their own history, talked about it as um, pure blood or impure blood, which is a little bit different than how we might talk about um, race in English. And then in the chapter on the Rosario Castellanos, I look at particularly the roles of women and indigenous people, but through a number of distorted maternal relationships. And then in Vicente Leñero, um, his novel called El Evangelio de Lucas Gavilán, so the Gospel of Luke Gavilán, um, is a reimagination of the Gospel of Luke from the Christian New Testament, and how this reimagined Jesus, who in the Gospel of Luke is very invested in performing miracles, particularly to help poor, sad, sick, lonely people, that they don't quite work. Um, but it's very, uh, it's, they're really embodied miracles. So the bodies, as you mentioned, are a central part of your narrative. And that uh, leads me to ask you the second question I was mentioning before. And it is the idea of the revolutionary body. How that look like and how all these images that you explore are so different that do not belong to this narrative. Yeah, that's something that I um, look at in all of the chapters is this idea that's quite a beautiful idea um, that everyone should belong in this new Mexico, in the post-revolutionary Mexico, that the raza cosmica, like the cosmic race, is going to be a light for all nations. Vasconcelos comes out of a tradition of utopian essays that are common in Latin America, so he's not the only person who had this kind of idea. He encapsulated it with the mixed race in a way that's more poetic than others, I think. Um, and unfortunately, this is a beautiful idea, but it's not one that everyone could feasibly participate in. Um, we see this in everyday Mexico, um, that there are many people who are marginalized because their, um, their jobs aren't jobs that are perhaps funded by the state, like in the bureaucracy, or as a public school teacher or something like that, like they're not part of a powerful labor organization. Um, they are doing something in the um, informal economy. That's a really a lot of people in Mexico. Um, and the cosmic race really included indigenous people by erasing their particular identity and history. So saying, well, you can be mestizo, but you can't be indígena or indigenous anymore. Um, or will have special programs for you, but they won't really let you join in to this new future. Um, and for women, um, the government lauded women who work at home, but didn't do, had, you know, daycare programs, which is a good thing for women who work outside of the home, but it wasn't really providing support. And as I'm sure 
um, our readers who are interested in the history of sex work in Mexico know that that is also not a protected type of work in Mexico, even though that's one of the main ways that women, particularly marginalized women, have been able to work and also organize. Um, so there's all these people who can't participate in the dream of a new and better Mexico. And that's what all of these authors, um, either by focusing on, in the case of Juan Rulfo, um, on campesinos, on peasants in rural areas who were not really reached by land reform programs that were supposed to bring them prosperity, showing us that these people, you know, they should be part of the nation and that we can think about them as an alternative collective that could be a different or better way to imagine a new future for Mexico. But right now, at the time that these different works of literature are being written, they weren't. They weren't allowed to become part. Yeah, no, if I remember correctly, even in the introduction, you are telling us um, about Jose Vasconcelos and this idea of the cosmic race. Like, as you said at the beginning, it seems like a beautiful idea, but the, the deeper you go into the writings, you notice how it is an idea that left ill people, even ugly people, aside in a really, really eugenic way of thinking. Could you tell us a little bit more about that in order to understand the bodies you explore? Yeah, so normally in the English-speaking world, when we think of eugenics, we might think of um, Nazi programs to exterminate millions of people. Um, and so logically, we have a very negative view of eugenics, as I think we should. Um, but that was actually influenced by... Um, U.S. and Northern European thinking. Uh, Mexico, because of the particularities of Latin American history uh, throughout the 19th century, so this was after independence, um, but before the revolution, was really strongly influenced by France more than other parts of Europe or the United States. And so there was a slightly different view of eugenics and human development um, by someone. So Darwin is what we might think of as a precursor to U.S. type of eugenics. Lamarck is a person who we can think of as a precursor to Mexican ideas of eugenics. And it's a much stronger idea um, of heredity, of things that we would no longer really think of as being inherited characteristics, like ugliness, poverty. Um, yeah, the poverty that makes people ugly. And um, this idea was that you need to eradicate the source so that you could have a more beautiful future. Um, meant, it meant trying to modify people and people's behavior in a different way. Um, so targeting with, say, public health campaigns of posters of um, this is what you look like if you're an alcoholic or this is what your children will look like if you have syphilis. Um, but not all of this is completely scientifically wrong, but it's a very different way of thinking about science than what we would think of today as correct. <laughs> so let's move to your first chapter where you talk, as you already mentioned, about Jose Revueltas and blindness as a symbol of the subjugation of the Mexican state. Why did you pick this metaphor and what is telling us in the words of Jose Revueltas? So I picked this metaphor because I found it so striking. Um, Uh, in the first chapter, I look at two collections of short stories by Jose de Vueltas, um, God on Earth and Sleeping on Earth, Dios en la Tierra and Dormir en Tierra, and Walls of Water, Los Muros de Agua. Um, they're all from the early 
1940s, so the very beginning of this period of industrialization in Mexico. And um, the images of eyes were so strange. There's an image of a woman who is a lower middle class or working class person who is just lying on her bed. She's tuberculosis. A doctor comes to visit her on a house call, and he is myopic, so nearsighted. Um, and because it's the 1940s, his glasses were incredibly thick. Um, and so she couldn't see his eyes. And it kind of becomes a symbol of the power imbalance between them, where her body is distorted because of her, I would guess, various illnesses. Um, but in the story, it's mostly ascribed to tuberculosis. And then he comes from outside, and he doesn't really talk to her. He mostly talks to the husband. Um, that this in, inch or two of glass um, in his glasses is reflects the great distance um, between her and her ability to act to be healthy. Um, and then the story talks about how she takes a blind rage out on her husband and her son, who appears to have some kind of disability. Um, so that's really weird. And then there's a, another story where God is an angry cyclops. It's also a little bit strange, particularly as it's using Christian imagery, which doesn't usually um, give God the Father uh, physical characteristics. It's usually ascribed to the another part of the Christian idea of God, which is uh, God's son, Jesus. And that person typically has two eyes. Anyway, so this is just so weird um, that I got fascinated by it and realized that it's not only in these stories that are so striking, it's everywhere, um, in other relationships between doctors and patients, in um, sleeping on earth, and then in walls of water, which is a reflection on one of Revolta's earlier imprisonments um, for his political activism uh, with a type of communism that was critical of the Mexican government's uh, type of institutional revolution. Um, so we can see that this image of blindness, if you focus on it, you can see how various works criticized all different parts of um, the Mexican government, its police and incarceration system, um, the way it related to its medical system. In the 1940s, Mexico didn't yet have any kind of insurance program, um, but it's still clear that the single image shows all kinds of power imbalances and all kinds of people who couldn't access the dream, basically, um, who, who weren't able to be part of the Mexican collective. And I, um, Jose de Vueltas was also a prolific essayist. And so in that chapter, I compare some of these stories with his essays from this time period and from later on, um, his participation in a strike or commentary on a strike with railway workers in the 1950s and then participation in um, an anti-government movement that culminated with the Tlatelolco Massacre in 1968, right before the Olympic Games in Mexico City. And that this single image um, allowed for a whole host of commentary on all parts of Mexican society. And I think that's one of the really interesting um, perspectives uh, from your book, like how you uh, look at this as different mirrors that are actually reflecting different realities of the Mexican Revolution at that time. This idea of the institutionalization of the revolution, that is something that uh, makes us smile as historians or as Mexicanists because it's just this fascinating idea that you can make an institution out of a revolution. 
But what is really interesting in this chapter and others, it is how during the moment of the Mexican miracle, you still have people that do not have access or that distrust the institutions that the revolution have created. And that's something you did like really, really interestingly with this idea of um, the health system and uh, these images of blindness. Would you like to add something more about this chapter and those ideas? Um, I think that I have commented enough on that chapter, but I'd be happy to move on to others. Um, sure, sure, sure. Let's go then to can... Pedro Paramo. Uh, that is um, a book from Please Pedro Paramo. It is Juan Rulfo. Juan Rulfo. Thank you. Juan Thank Rulfo. you. I always have this. And you use the metaphor of blood there and bad blood. Could you explain us that idea of bad blood before going on on how you use it on the book? Yeah, so one kind of connection between Jose Revueltas and Juan Rulfo um, is the fact, I'll come to bad blood in a moment, is the fact that so much of the stories take place in the countryside, which is largely ignored by the Mexican federal government, which is, like many Latin American governments, heavily centralized in the capital. Um, and the idea that the, one of the promises of the Mexican Revolution was land reform, that everyone would be able to cultivate a small plot of land, and that large landowners um, who owned so many hectares or acres in either system of measurement, enormous, enormous amounts of land, that it wasn't accessible for most people. And most people worked in kind of day labor or, or sharecropping type of arrangement. Um, and we see portrayals of campesino or peasants in Juan Rulfo's collection of short stories, El Llano Llamas, The Plain in Flames, and Pedro Paramo. Um, Pedro Paramo is, is probably one of the most famous works of Mexican literature. Um, Juan Rulfo managed to become famous with essentially only two works of literature, a novel and a collection of short stories, as well as later on the publication um, of a screenplay. Um, but that's not nearly as well known. And I think one of the reasons is because his novel talks about a town of ghosts. Um, there's someone who the main character is going to visit his father going to the town where his father purportedly came from, although he had never known his father. Um, when he gets there, people talk to him and people tell stories about his father, Pedro Paramo, except that it, everyone is dead, um, that these are ghosts who are really talking to him and explaining this life to him. Um, so one thing I noticed about um, particularly the descriptions of uh, Pedro Paramo's relationships with women, Pedro Paramo in the novel um, is a cacique, so like a rural chief who's in charge of the town um, and who controls it essentially together with the local Catholic priest. Um, is that there are these very bloody images of how uh, Pedro Paramo assaults or rapes women, um, but then also in descriptions of what is going on in the church, like the body and blood of Christ, that that, to me, um, many images throughout this were a little bit distorted, like a little bit too much um, in places that you wouldn't expect them. And so that's part of why I talked about bad blood um, 
the idea, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, um, at the time of contact or conquest, uh, when Spain invaded Latin America, they had this idea, or they were very invested in blood purity, so people would be the right kind of Catholic. They wouldn't have any influence of any other religion. Um, and they brought this idea to Latin America, and that became part of their racial hierarchies in Latin America, was more founded on blood than um, described slightly differently in um, English-speaking parts of the Americas. Anyway, so the idea that you can have bad blood makes sense in a context where colonization came about while trying to eradicate impure blood from Spain. Um, and I think that part of the idea of the revolution was, of course, also to remake Mexico with a specific type of corporeal imagery. And in this case, I argue that it could also be a particular type of blood that was trying to be eradicated. At the same time, these kind of disgusting images keep coming up all the time um, in um, Pedro Paramo and then in Mariano Niema that show that these people weren't really being invited in to any kind of better body. Um, there's a number of stories in El Llano Niama that also have imagery that I read as blood, even though it was other bodily fluids. Um, there's a story of someone with open sores who's being carried across um, the plane, a plane in the city of Jalisco um, to the Basilica of the Virgin of Talpa in a short story called Talpa. And his sores are described in a way that evokes menstruation, even though they're simply open sores on his body that are likely more pus-filled than blood-filled. Um, and so that, to me, evoked the imagery in Pedro Paramo um, and tears that appear throughout Eliano uh, Nyama, and that show many situations where people were not allowed to join in, um, that people might have been dying of thirst as they crossed the plain when they were trying to get the land that they had been promised. They were trying to get some kind of religious redemption um, at this particular shrine. Um, so many ways that people were trying to do something to get to a better place, and in so many ways it was prevented. Um, at the same time, one of the arguments that I also make in the book is that because this imagery is so sustained um, throughout the work of a particular author, that it can be read in a more hopeful way, that it can be thought of as creating connections between people, between all of these different excluded people that they might allow us to think about a different way to imagine a better Mexico than the way, than the official rhetoric. And in, in this chapter, before we move to the others, like in, in all your chapters, you bring uh, several conversations, like gender uh, or, or your feminist perspective is clear throughout the, the book. But I think in, in Rulfo's uh, literary works, you did an interesting analysis of the role of women in the construction of this Mexican body and Can you tell us more about these women you explore in this chapter before we move to Rosario Castellanos talking about women? Absolutely. So um, 
I think it's important to know a little bit about the basics of Mexican gender stereotyping. Um, so in the Mexican ideal, there would be only two genders, men and women. Um, and that there are different ways you can be a man and different ways you can be a woman, and some are better than others. So for the man, you want to be chingon, um, which is hyper-masculine, um, someone who can sleep with all the women he wants while still being married to a faithful wife. Um, that's chingon. So awesome is another translation for that. Um, and throughout the 1940s and 50s, this was modified um, kind of after the ways that different presidents um, were creating a vision of masculinity. There's a historian in Mexico City, Sara Luna Elisarada, um, who has written very extensively about this. So I highly recommend her work if you can read Spanish. And there's also a slightly less good type of man who's, you know, a little bit too invested in how he dresses, um, a little bit too fancy, I guess, you might be one way to describe it. That does not appear in literature that touches the countryside. Um, there is another type of man who's the definitely understood as a lesser man, um, who would be a man who'd be described perhaps as queer, a man who's weak, a man who has disabilities, essentially a man who could not father children um, or be forceful towards women. Um, and then, so the chingon could, is seen as um, more powerful than this type of male figure. And then there are the women who need to be the ideal companion. So there's one type of ideal companion who's a devoted wife, who will raise the children, will be perfect Catholic, um, and who will remain a virgin until marriage and uh, faithful thereafter to her husband. Um, and so we see some really very few examples of this type of woman um, in Russo's work. And then there's the woman who could be like the other woman, um, could be a sex worker, could be someone who sleeps with another man while she's married, um, or simply could be a man who, a woman who does her own thing. Um, that would, that woman would be rhetorically and stereotypically modeled after um, Malinche, who was the translator or rape survivor or lover of Hernán Cortés, the conqueror of Mexico, um, and would be called Chingada. Now, this type of commentary on that particular figure is so important um, when Rufo is writing because it's partially in response to and partially in conversation with Octavio Paz's um, very famous essay called The Labyrinth of Solitude, where he says that all Mexicans are children of Chingada and kind of blames her for all of Mexico's problems, which is obviously an overstatement at best. And in Pedro Paramo and Eliano Nyamas, we see women, like in the story that I was describing in Salpa, um, where they go across the plain, there's a woman, Natalia, who's carrying her husband with her brother-in-law, but then she's sleeping with her brother-in-law. So, like, what, um, does she have power in this situation? Is she trying to reclaim a little bit of agency in a situation where she doesn't have very much? Is it, does she have any to begin with? Um... And in Pedro Paramo, there's the reams of women who Pedro Paramo has slept with and fathered children with. Um, but some of them are the ones who are speaking um, to the main character. And so we see, oh, do they have agency? 
um, there's a character who's supposedly crazy, Susanna San Juan, like, is she crazy? Is she responding to a life of difficulty? Um, and the idea of blood and who is bleeding, um, if men are bleeding, obviously it's bad in this scheme. If women are, it's different, but also they are not as good as, as Chungun. Um, but it's interesting because I wouldn't describe Rulfo as a feminist writer, but to see how we can um, use the tools of feminist criticism, um, even from a very basic understanding of gender, like a very binary understanding of gender, that we can still use that to say, oh, but these stories are playing around with ideas of who men and women are, that we're in conversation with ideals of the time period from intellectuals and from national leaders. Yeah, that's that's very, very interesting. And I think it's time to move to Chapter 3 and Rosario Castellanos. We have so many topics in here. Um, in this case, as I mentioned, you, you uh, explore different topics, but I would like uh, to focus in the case of Rosario Castellanos with this idea of indigenismo. What's the role of indigenous people in the idea of mestizaje, but also bureaucracy. I think it, that's the perspective you are letting us know in here, especially as you mentioned at the beginning of this interview that Rosario Castellanos was working for the state. So how, how did you put all of those topics together? Yeah, Rosario Castellanos is a fascinating intellectual. Um, she was a journalist, um, has her... Uh, newspaper articles have been collected into three volumes um, in the 90s, and she died young, so to have written so much. Anyway, fascinating person. She's from the state of Chiapas, um, which borders on Guatemala and is a state with a very high percentage of indigenous people. Um, her, some of her family's land, she came from a wealthy family, was expropriated after the revolution. And I think that this spurred significant interest in indigenous people. Um, throughout her work. Castellanos was employed by the Instituto Nacional Indigenista, the Mexican equivalent of the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the United States um, at that time. And she was in charge of uh, educational puppet shows, so a kind of popular education for people um, with lower levels of literacy or um, lower familiarity effectively with writing, even if they knew how to. Um, this is the idea. Anyway. So one of the problems of mestizaje is that it requires racial mixture. This is the ideal of the cosmic race. Um, and so magically, after the first, the earliest censuses post-revolution and the latest pre-revolutionary censuses show that, and throughout the 19th century as well, um, that greater and greater numbers of people were identifying as mestizo rather than indigenous. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily because people stopped being indigenous, perhaps because they were living in more urban areas, um, and so no longer uh, practiced traditional religion or spirituality or dress. But I think a large part of it is the national rhetoric that was trying to promote a type of integration. Um, at the same time, not everyone was interested in this, um, and so there was an arm of the government specifically charged with working with indigenous people, um, as well as the 
um, Agrarian Reform Bureau that was in charge of collectively distributing land to um, communities who petitioned as communities, not as individuals, through ICIBOs, which is um, another way that the state was controlling and relating directly to indigenous people. Um, there's also, so this is happening um, in conjunction with artistic and literary movements that are trying to move away from earlier ideals in Spanish, I think we would call them Indianismo, that are uh, exoticizing or orientalizing indigenous people um, without acknowledging the lived reality of them as humans. And Indianismo was trying to move a little bit further in a direction of, you know, acknowledging people as humans, but still was very simplistic. Um, and overall, I would say indigenous people come off as having less complex inner lives um, in literary and artistic representation that would fall in this category. Um, Rosario Castellano's work um, in my book, I look at Balun Canan and Oficio de Tinieblas, which are translated as The Nine Guardians and um, Book of Lamentations. And these are two novels that deal with um, the state of Chiapas. Um, and they do try and engage with the lived reality of all people in Chiapas, so Latino people, so people who would identify as white or whiter, um, who have power in the situation, who would be a male landowner, his ideal wife, who's the mother of his children, and then his uh, numerous, perhaps, mistresses, second families, and then sex workers. So the man is having a lot of fun. Um, and then the women in all of these situations are trying to get by. And um, the Nine Guardians is um, more of a memoir based. It's from the perspective of a child. And people argue, I believe correctly, that it is a missing of Castellano's childhood. Um, and it's in conversation with an indigenous nanny, who is the person who's raising this white child. Um, and then Oficio de Tinieblas talks about the caste wars in the 19th century, so indigenous uprisings um, against Spanish and later Mexican um, wealthier people. Uh, and also uh, a new religious movement um, that surrounds an indigenous woman that's based on trances and general unusual religious experiences that today we might associate with charismatic or Pentecostal groups, but at that time were associated with this indigenous spirituality. Um, and what I talk about there is the way, particularly in Oficio de Tinieblas, the Book of Lamentations, that we can trace um, relationships between women across these boundaries of race and class, which are very closely related in Mexico. Um, but there are different types of mother-child relationships, um, like mother-daughter relationships, and perhaps if we focus on those types of relationships as we read them in literature, rather than the literary representations of the power structure, um, that we can also use those works of literature to imagine another type of relationship and another type of inclusion of people that isn't based on erasing indigenous people saying, okay, the government will control those people and eventually they'll die out. Um, my oversimplification of the goals of the Instituto Nacional Indigenista. And 
So instead of having particular control over one group of people saying, oh, we can acknowledge them on their own terms and um, that perhaps women can have solidarity with, like white women could have solidarity with indigenous women instead of solidarity with white men or Ladina women with Ladino men. Yeah, and you know, uh, during this conversation and throughout your book, you uh, keep talking about these flaws of uh, the Mexican state and the role of bureaucracy. So I think it's it's brilliant that you close with Vicente Leñero and the post-1968 era. So your book covers almost three decades of analysis, and you finish uh, this analysis with 1968, that is that moment with all these cracks of, of the uh, rhetoric of the state are so visible at that time. And you talk about other institutions like the Catholic Church or the uh, bureaucracy inefficiencies or the inefficiencies of the healthcare system. Why to close your analysis with Vicente Leñero? What, what are their literary work Uh, works telling you about that era of the Mexican state? Yeah, so as you know, I think 1968 is the moment when it was clear to everybody that the Mexican state was a, a failure, that it was not living up to its promises, that the Mexican state had been doing that like through um, the government, through the government, like the elected part of the government, as well as through the bureaucracy, um, and then through related organizations that were funded by the government um, or some kind of close influence like the Catholic Church, that it had been doing bad things. But that became clear to everyone. And if it wasn't clear, then people were sleeping, metaphorically. Um, and so Vicente Leñero, his writing comes about a decade after that. The book was published um, in 1979, I believe. And it is a good opportunity for commentary on the previous decade. Um, and 1982 is a moment of, of more significant economic crisis. So there's more changes after 1982. That's one reason why I wanted to reflect on the Mexican miracle without entering, I would say 1982 to the present is a very different um, period in Mexican history than the previous several decades. Um, and One thing that I liked about Vicente Leñero is that it was a novel, but it was written like short stories. So it brought together the two genres that I was working with um, in the earlier three chapters. It is a book that takes the structure of the Gospel of Luke from the Jerusalem Bible. Um, so the Catholic Church has a translation of the Bible for Hebrew and Greek that they endorse. And at this time, it was the Jerusalem Bible now. Um, I believe it's the New Jerusalem Bible. Anyway, so there's headings, and then there's a series of verses um, that come after each heading. And so Vicente Leñero just takes all of the headings and reimagines them as if they were in Mexico. Um, and the Gospel of Luke has the story of Mary, um, so this, who would become known as the Virgin Mary, being visited by the angel Gabriel. And in the book, she goes to visit a midwife, and they discuss possibly terminating the pregnancy. So a little bit different from the New Testament, um, but very real for a woman who's from a poor background who doesn't know how she's going to deal with this happening in her life, an unexpected pregnancy. Um, 
and the baby, oh, like Jesus is a common name for, or common-ish name for young men, um, but the kid is called Jesucristo, not Jesus. So it's a little bit strange, um, so it's like calling him Jesus Christ. And Gomez, and his second last name, his maternal surname is David, which is because in the New Testament, the idea is that he's from the house of David, and um, so there's several biblical allusions, but it's very, very Mexican. Um, Jesus, or Jesucristo, takes his disciples from men who are sorting through garbage to find valuables to be recycled or resold, in Itapalapa, uh, working class um, delegación in Mexico City. Um, and so, no, oh, okay, never mind. Um, perdón. Um, and so, these people were very ordinary men, uh, men with problems or families or struggles. And it's to show that, um, in at least in the Gospel of Luke's interpretation, Jesus related to ordinary people and not all the fanciness of the church. In the novel also criticizes many elements of the Mexican Catholic Church as Jesucristo is relating to his pepenadores and his zapalapa. Um, and they go, for example, to uh, where there's going to be a new expansion of the Basilica to the Virgin of Guadalupe and very, very sharply critical of all the money that's gone into that rather than into the people who are giving way more money than they have really to support the church. Um, and Hizuquisto, you know, he just, um, he doesn't quite perform miracles, but he does, for example, manage to get someone with no kind of insurance um, access to health care, which is essentially a miracle. Um, but he, he's able to work these different aspects of the bureaucracy to help people. In the story, uh, the novel, Hizuquisto uh, is also, he also dies in the back of a police car because he's part of a protest. Um, and he doesn't come back to life, which is the Christian story. He um, is, comes back to life through the work of his followers and who are working for social justice. And so this is also very critical of, I would say, the two best-known massacres of innocent people in Mexico um, in 1968 in Tlatelolco and in 1971 in Flores de Corpus, or Monday Thursday, um, which works really well with the imagery of um, this main character as being Jesus, who was killed the day after on Good Friday in the New Testament. So evoking all of these events in Mexico um, and criticizing them as deeply, deeply unjust and that so many people are working hard for their families. They're trying, but the system, like everything is stacked up against them. Um, but that it still somehow manages to end hopefully and that the main character in this novel can actually make things happen in spite of all of these obstacles um, it's a, that was also a nice way to end the manuscript, um, with, uh, a novel that was showing all of the many, many problems because it's a social realist novel, um, but still ended somewhat hopefully, um, 
And then in the conclusion to the book, I talk about the Mexico City subway, one of the most fascinating transit systems in the world, I believe, um, and how that's described by um, Mexican essayists, or a little bit more similar to creative nonfiction, Cronica, um, and how they talk about how people get around Mexico City and how they deal with all of the um, beautiful parts and all of the ways that the Mexican government, bureaucracy, associated civil society organizations are working for a very small number of people, but that people still, they still get up and try and make things happen for themselves. Thank you. Yeah, I I don't want to finish this conversation without talking a little bit more about the subway and your conclusions. What is the subway? What did you see there while you were doing your research that is related to bodies and power in Mexico? Well, as I'm sure, well, as you know, and as perhaps your listeners will know, the Mexico City subway is um, incredible. It is many, many kilometers. Um, it works most of the time. Um, I would say on balance, better than the transit system in the city where I currently live. Um, <laughs> and it was You know, it's a public transit system. It's not something that typically makes money. But um, it's very clear. And in one of the Cronicas de Juan Villoro, he talks about how as soon as you go underground, you can see the city change. Um, people with light skin or white skin don't take the subway, um, typically. They might take it if they have to go to university, but not like at very specific times of day and to very specific destinations. Um, At the same time, taking the subway, um, when I was doing research, was easy to do if you had tickets. Now there's the tap cards, um, similar to many transit systems throughout the world. But those aren't accessible for everyone. Um, and so people who really have few resources would, I think, be more likely to take colectivo-level buses, so not the metro bus, which is an dedicated transit lane, or the subway. Anyway, so it's not everyone who can even get on this system, even though it's very inexpensive. Um, that there, also when I was finishing writing this book, there were massive protests because the price went up um, for the subway. And when you're making a salario minimo or like minimum wage, many jobs in Mexico are classified as we'll pay you like five minimum wages a day. Um, so if you're making that level of money you're not, or you work in the informal economy, this is very, very detrimental to your way of life. Um, Also, if you take the Mexico City subway at rush hour, um, you will encounter many, many bodies. There, like, it will be difficult for you to get on the subway, like, as you go down the stairs and get on the platform. Um, and so you just see all kinds of people. Um, there's also a women's car because sexual harassment is pretty rampant on Mexico City subway. Um... And so in the women's car particularly, but really on any public transit in Mexico, because you're on it for so long, you'll see women like doing their makeup, curling their eyelashes. It's really quite something um, that we don't typically see, I would say, in the United States, um, with the exception of living in cities with really large Latino or Latina populations um, who are also in that area of the city where I think people would feel comfortable doing that. Um, And so there's all of these things going on that don't 
happen on transit where I have lived um, in Canada or the United States. And thinking about the different ways, like who gets to go on the subway, where are they going, what are the subway stops named? There's a subway station called La Raza, like the race, um, which is after the cosmic race, of course. And how there's one, when you transfer between lines in Mexico City, you have to walk quite far um, compared to, I would say, your average American or Canadian transit system where you transfer lines on a train-based public transit. And there's one where you're like in complete darkness because you're seeing some stars or something. They're trying to educate you. Um, so there's still like state projects to try and make people better, even as they're like rushing to work, trying to get there on time. Maybe they're taking a commuter train um, from one of the surrounding states and then they're on city transit. Um, still like trying to modify people and modify their brains. Lots of public education campaigns in the um, advertising on the subway. Um, and that's really the only chapter where I talked about the consumer economy it, very, very briefly in terms of all of the things that are sold on the subway, um, which I highly doubt is legal. Um, but it's part of the informal economy, which is a significant portion of um, how Mexican people make money. Um, and also all of the advertisements and you know who is in the advertisements, they all are perfect and they all are completely white, even um they are dressed slightly differently than people would be in the American ad, but they still look kind of the same. Um, just these things that, to me as an outsider, coming to Mexico, um, like, you know, going to the archives or going to the library at one of the many universities in Mexico City that I had time to notice because I was on transit for so long. Um, it's just so fascinating. And I'm just fascinated by transit on rails in general, like commuter trains city trains, intercity transit, you know, not everyone is, but um, that's, I'm convinced that it's a really interesting way to uh, see what, what's happening in any place is public transit. So that's how I concluded the book. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. And those sounds like really fascinating topics to research and explore. So I, I wonder, uh, is there any new topics you are working on now for future books or articles that you would like to share with us? Yeah. So um, I took this topic of the Mexican state and the different I guess, um, state apparatuses in a little bit of a different direction. Um, I focused on two minority immigrant communities in Mexico, um, the Mennonites from Canada and Mormons from Utah, which is now in the United States when they were migrating in the 19th century. It wasn't quite, um, or it was in the process of becoming the U.S. And looking at how they appear in Mexican culture from the 1920s to the present. Um, so that is going to be a book. It's going to come out um, a little bit later this year. A book called Liminal Sovereignty, Mennonites and Mormons in Mexican Culture. Uh, so I used a lot of the theoretical components of this book and my knowledge of Mexican history to look at how um, Mexican society understands these rather unusual expressions of religious devotion and really strong communities that have integrated with Mexico in very different ways. That sounds like a great project. Hopefully we will have the chance to have another conversation in the future on, on that project. Uh, for today, I just want to thank you for being on the show and sharing all of these interesting um, 
uh, topics that you have been researching on. Thank you. I really enjoy it. Well, it's wonderful to talk to you.